Hello, this is Catherine, and welcome to another day of random stuff. Sorry for the late post, you guys, but time has ways to get away from me sometimes. I this, this is just gonna say be this week's sermon given by Pastor Ray Adams yesterday at Open Arms Church. Enjoy. My ways are not your ways. My plans are not your plans. I think that our sound leaders would agree with us today. <laughs> Their plans are not going as planned, and yet God is still in the house. Amen. So today, I want to talk to you about something that is probably one of my top ten sins. Self-righteous anger. Anybody else deal with that? I think in this world especially, it's hard not to feel this self-righteous anger. I know what I'm doing, right? If emotion were cuisine, Bible commentary commentator Rodney Clapp says, then this would be the pièce de résistance, the dish we love to linger on time and time again. Because, you know, anger by itself doesn't taste so good. It's bitter, and it kind of leaves an aftertaste, right? On the other hand, self-righteousness. Well, there is the seasoning that makes a plain old hamburger irresistible. Self-righteous angle Anger goes down smoothly. It makes us feel superior. It elevates us lesser mortals. Not to mention, it does something with our enemies. So long as we have it on our plates, the confusing grayness of the wearisome world goes away. It is bracingly, refreshingly clear when we have this self-righteous anger that we're the good guys and the other people are the bad guys. As if this wasn't enough, it reheats wonderfully. It tastes almost as fine the second or fifth or sixtieth time out of the oven. I do love me some self-righteous anger. It's a meal I eat often and with gusto. You see, I always know what's right and wrong, good and bad, fair and not fair, and so on and so on. And that and a side of mayo make a great kind of anger, and it's a delicious and satisfying meal. No? But this is Lent. And this is the time in which we are reminded that not only are we not always right, but we always have something to repent for. And we know that the message of the Lenten season is repentance. It's a season that messes up our menus and changes our taste for the typical meals we usually enjoy. And that's what's happening in our reading today. Jesus is hanging with his home folks, his homies, if you will, fellow Galileans, and they want to serve him up a heaping helping of hometown indignation and self-righteous anger. They know just what they think will tempt Jesus' palate. They tell him about the Galatians whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read this, I had no idea what they were talking about. Sometimes the ideas that the biblical writers think we will know have become less clear over, I don't know, a couple of millennia. So I looked it up. 
Apparently, there had been a massacre ordered by Pilate and carried out by the Roman soldiers inside the temple walls. As if that wasn't bad enough, the men were there making ritual sacrifices. They were cut down like lambs in the slaughter, said one of my commentaries. No, not even that. They were cut down with the lambs who were being slaughtered, mixing the blood and making both sacrifices unholy. Surely there could be nothing worse for observant Jews of Galilee than such a violent and unprovoked, reprehensible fact. What could make the Romans look worse and the Jews more innocent? And wronged. They were the wronged party, right? Such evil, such wickedness. Surely even Jesus himself would have to condemn such an act. Hmm. Has anyone read or seen the movie by Margaret Atwood called The Handmaid's Tale? Now, I don't know if it's in the TV show or not. I decided I'd had enough after the first two. But there's a scene in those two that remind me of what the Galileans are doing here. Now, in the scene, the handmaids, who are the only fertile women left in the world and are therefore held like breeding stock under super-controlling religiously-based regime, think North Korea, only based on religion. Anyway, the handmaids are gathered in a re-education camp, and eventually they're called to this rally, and during the assembly, a young man is brought out before them. The women are told that he was, in fact, a rapist which is pretty much the worst thing you can be in this society. And then the leader brings out the big news. The rapist attacked a handmaid, a breeder, and then the piece de resistance, and she was pregnant. The women in the crowd shriek in anger and scream for revenge as the tyrant adds the piece that brings them over the edge. The baby died. The person on stage can barely be heard over the frenzied crowd demanding that the man be turned over to them. And finally, he's torn, he's thrown to the women who tear him limb from limb. Now, as they stay out of the fray, two of our protagonists who have also been a part of this group but are also a part of the underground resistance converse. One says to the other one very quietly, that the man was actually a valued member of the resistance. You see, the leader would have probably had to dispose of that man herself had she spoken the truth about his crime, standing up against the state. Sound familiar? Jewish leaders making their case to the Romans. They might have had to clean up their own mess. And at the very least, the Jews wouldn't have had such an appetite. And the women would not have had such an appetite had the story been different. That was a movie. But we have evidence of that kind of thing in modern times as well. I wonder if any of you have ever heard the stories of German soldiers taking bayonets to infants during World War I, or Iraqi soldiers removing babies from incubators in Kuwaiti hospitals and leaving them on the floor to die. Now, both of those stories were eventually held to be false. But when these rumors became news... There's a little tolerance for the person who says, hey, you know what, we should wait for some proof. We need an investigation. We need our sources checked. In fact, the one who asks for such things in those times is often considered a traitor, am I right? Disloyal to his country. Have you ever heard that saying that people who eat sausage don't want to know how it's made? 
The same is true of self-righteous anger. Best not to look too closely at the ingredients, like where did you get your information, who started the whole thing, who said what to whom and where and when and why. Don't look at that. You do not want to see it. And you probably want to share that dish, though, with people who you are sure will agree with you. All that is a way to say that we have no way of knowing if the story told by the people of Galilee is true or not. But Luke's historical critic, Kenneth Bailey, says that it's true that his town people are trying to ignite Jesus' nationalistic sympathies. They're trying to ignite Jesus' love of nation over individuals. Now, they expect that this clear story, right versus wrong, moral versus immoral, Goliath crushing David, government versus rapists and drug dealers and human traffickers, all we got to do is build a border, and all that riffraff will stop. They expect that this clear story of right versus wrong would prompt Jesus to condemn the Romans and their cruelty, their lack of humanity, their pure wickedness. But Jesus being Jesus, doesn't take the bait. Instead, he turns the story back on them, and he wants to know, these Galileans that you say suffered so badly on Pilate's watch, were they worse sinners than all the other Galileans? What about the workers who died having been crushed while innocently building a tower in a nearby town? Were the ones who lived any better than the ones who were crushed? Jesus says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will perish just as they did. Now notice what I'm saying here. Jesus never says a word about the Romans. And he certainly doesn't forgive them or say what they did was okay or that their oppression is anything but oppression. But but he will not allow himself to be drawn into the self-righteous anger that is so absolute that pits Galileans versus Romans as the only evil that exists, and not just particular Romans, all of Rome. He won't allow himself to be defined by his enemies. Jesus calls out those people who thinks they are the only righteous ones while judging everyone else with contempt. It's so easy to do, isn't it? I know there are certain people, members of my own family even, that I've taken this attitude with and I have unfriended them. You know what I mean? Because I'm right and they're usually wrong, right? Now it says pause, drink. (laughs) Seriously, we've heard it said though, don't judge the splinter in your neighbor's eye when you're rocking around with a log so big you're knocking things over, right? And this does not just apply to the neighbors that you like. It might apply to your enemies, too. You know, we live in a day in which we want to blame everyone else for the evils of the world. Christians and the disenfranchised blame the Muslims and the immigrants, as we saw this week in New Zealand. Liberals blame the conservatives. Conservatives blame the liberals, the movies, video games, bullying. Heck, everyone blames us queers. But not only are we responsible for the moral decline of the world, but we probably created climate change, licorice, cancer, the gridlock, just in our spare time, am I right? But in the middle of all that noise, Jesus says, hang on, slow your roll. Let's think this through. Think about the homely old fig tree, one that has not borne much fruit in in a long time. 
The farmer says, just cut the darn thing down. It's using up soil that can be used for something that bears fruit. But the gardener wants to give it just one more chance. Let me aerate the soil. Give it some good manure, or as the children said, boop. Do everything I can to make it grow. And if it doesn't in one year, then we can chop it down. So just when we're feeling all high and mighty, like we're the only people on the moral high ground, like we're ready to knock evil back where it came from with our flattering self-image, armed with right on our side, wrong is over there, Jesus knocks us back down to earth, covers our high and mighty attitudes with exactly what it should be covered with, manure, or as the children would say, poop and hands us a mirror to see ourselves clearly. He demands us, with, he reminds us with talk of a scruffy tree that's taking up valuable real estate, that it is not we who are meant to judge. We cannot cast the first stones. It is us. We must repent and look to God. Jesus says, ask yourself if you're like the fig tree. Are you bearing fruit Or are you taking up space? And if you're taking up space, what are you doing with the space that you're taking? What are you doing to further the dominion of God? Because you can't further the dominion of God with anger and finger pointing and watching TV and yelling at the orange guy. You cannot do that sitting safely on the sidelines and complaining or just being determined that you're right. So the rest of everybody else should just fall in line. It's enough hot sauce to ruin your appetite for self-righteous anger, isn't it? But after all, this is Lent. And Lent does change the menu. Amen. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. You can find me on Facebook at Kathy McIntyre. You can find my show at anchor.fm slash Kathy dash McIntyre. You can find me on Google Podcasts. Spotify, and Stitcher. Search for Catherine's Random Stuff. And you can contact me at kathymc32575 at gmail.com. And I'll talk to you next week.